With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast contains conversations about violence, death, sexual assault, and includes explicit language. Please take care while listening. This is part six of an on-the-ground investigation into the mysterious deaths of Chris Kramers and the San Fruin, two young women who died in the jungle of Panama in 2014. What happened to Chris and the San? Was it a hiking accident, a double murder, or something else altogether? I'm Mariana Atencio. In this series, I travel to the small town of Boquete with Jeremy Kreit from the Daily Beast to reinvestigate this case eight years later. For a key witness in a famous international mystery, Margarita Valenzuela doesn't exactly look the part. She's small and frail at 69. Her white hair is tied up neatly in a bun. When we meet her, she's dressed in a prim and simple gray skirt and a navy blue cardigan. Her hands are a bit unsteady, and so is her gait. But there is something in her eyes that belies her age. They are deep-set and keen and piercing, like the eyes of a hawk. And when she starts to speak about the death of her son, Osman Valenzuela, who was just 22 when police say he was murdered in 2014, those eyes begin to burn with such intensity that it is hard to meet her gaze. Margarita is at our hotel in Boquete at the request of Martin Ferrara, the private eye who has been assisting with our investigation. She promises to tell not only how and why Osman was killed, but also to connect his murder to the deaths of Chris and the Sam. At first, Margarita is reluctant to talk to us. But she doesn't seem afraid. She's angry. Angry that the police haven't brought her son's killers to justice. Angry that all we're doing is talking to her. Talking won't help her situation. Talking won't keep her safe. Put yourself in my shoes to give a statement and leave me adrift. Don't you know what a ship adrift is like? I feel like I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, and I never see anything. How can I have faith in you that I would really see something, that I will see the light at the end of the tunnel? Margarita says that since her son died, was murdered, she's been threatened, that she fears for her safety and the safety of her other children. She says the people who did this are the same group of young men, the same pandilla we've been investigating for their ties to Chris and the Sam. These men live in town. They're her neighbors, and she has nowhere else to go. She says members of the pandilla 
even crashed the rosary held for her son, Osman. We were doing the rosary for my son. That's when Edwin sent Morgus to throw stones at my house. It was like to scare us, to say, if we talk, that's why if you ask me, I would say, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. She could be putting herself and her family in danger speaking with us. They threatened my daughter. They tell my daughter, tell your mother not to talk about us and the girls because we will kill you. Can you imagine when no one is home? They burn my house or kill me or they come in. What can I do? As my son tells me, Mom, do you think those people who look at your gray hair and think, oh, she's just an old lady, we won't do anything to her? They have no scruples with those girls. Do you think they're going to have it with me? In spite of the threats, Margarita is determined to be heard. She tells us why she's willing to risk her safety to share what she knows with us. So the mothers of the young Dutch women rest in peace, and for my own son to rest in peace. I put myself in the shoes of those two girls. What happened to these young women and to many other women? I know what they suffered. For Margarita to come forward like this is an incredible act of bravery. To talk with two foreign journalists about the death of her son and the death of these two Dutch women, it takes guts and grace. Margarita is a smart woman. She knows this podcast will be published, and she knows what could happen when word gets out that she talked. We'll do our best to protect her, but let's face it, her son was murdered. She says to keep him quiet. But Margarita won't keep quiet. Not until she gets justice for her son and for Kristen Lesan. From Cast Media, this is Lost in Panama, an investigative series about the mysterious deaths of Chris Kramer's and the San Fron. I'm Mariana Atencio. This is episode six, En la Casa de Cuervo. Subscribe to Cast Plus, where you can listen ad-free, and check out our Lost in Panama after show episodes where Jeremy and I sit down to dissect this case in far more detail than we're able to get into the main show. There's so much more to talk about here. Rabbit trails we didn't have time for, and Jeremy and I dig deep in these after-show episodes. To listen to them, just go to castmedia.com slash cast plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listen to this podcast ad-free on Amazon Music.
Let's start with Margarita's son, Osman. Margarita says Osman was a good Christian boy, very involved with the church. He was good friends with a young woman in town named Milagros Peña. Margarita says that's where all the trouble started. Osman used to help out Milagros with caring for her young child, and Milagros got Osman a job working at a bar and restaurant with her in Boquete. Milagros was friends with the members of the pandilla, guys like Tito, Edwin, Murgas, Cuervo, Sam John, and she introduced them to Osman. Margarita says that although Osman had gone to school with a lot of those guys, her son wasn't like them at all. My son was a young man who was very generous, very affectionate, very respectful. He was like that. Maybe because he was so trusting, that's why what happened to him happened to him. My son wasn't a bad kid. He liked to go to church. He liked going to dances. Doing bad things, that's not who my boy was. But luck then. He was there on the wrong day. According to his autopsy report, Osman's cause of death was drowning. So police initially ruled his death a drowning accident, but investigators later changed the verdict to a crime of homicide after his mother, Margarita, challenged the report. Pero cuando yo fui a, a ver a mi hijo en la morgue, when I went to see my son in the morgue, yo le pregunto asked, al muchacho mm -hmm. que le hace la autopsia. Who, I asked the man who did the autopsy. ¿Por qué mi hijo tiene unas marcas aquí? Why does my son have marks on his wrist? ¿Por qué mi hijo tiene marcas en los pies? And on his Dice, legs. señora, yo no sé, le digo yo. Said, yo me alteré. Margarita says she saw bruises on Osman's body that weren't mentioned in the autopsy report. And although it hadn't killed him, he'd also suffered a hemorrhagic contusion to the back of his head. In other words, he'd been hit in the head hard. If someone says they are going to dive into the water, they are going to end up hitting their forehead with a rock. They are not going to throw themselves in backwards. No. The logical conclusion was he'd been smacked from behind and then dumped in the river to drown while unconscious. Water in his lungs? means he was alive when he entered the river. But although the authorities ruled Osman's death a murder, no arrests were ever made. How is it possible that things were left like this and people see things but don't say anything? Margarita tells us that she's known for years who killed her son. She points the finger at the local pandilla, the same guys who threw stones at her house during Osman's rosary, the same group of guys Osman met through his job at the restaurant. They sell drugs. They sold cocaine and marijuana, white powder, you know. But those people are powerful people from town. Margarita names guys like Edwin, Murgas, Cuervo, Sam John, and Tito, Feliciano's son, 
She's known Tito since he was a teenager. He was with my son in high school, and he was a very problematic boy. But Margarita tells us the leader of the pandilla isn't Tito. It's Edwin Aguirre, the guy who was seen driving the red truck. People in town sometimes call him Sabroson because of the chain of restaurants his family owns. But Margarita says he has another nickname, El Pulpo, the octopus. Why is he like an octopus? Because he's the one who manages the whole group. He's the one who distributes. They are not his friends. He's the ringleader of everything that is sold, what is distributed. We've already learned that several witnesses reported seeing Chris and Lissan with the pandilla in the days before they disappeared. At a nightclub, at a party, buying drugs, or in a red pickup truck driven by Edwin, El Pulpo. Margarita says shortly after Chris and Lissan were reported missing, her son Osman said he had something important to tell her. So my son comes up to me and he says, Mom, you know something? Sit down, please. And I tell him, tell me. And he serves me a cup of coffee. Osman said he was having some trouble with the young men in the pandilla, that they'd threatened him. He tells me, Mom, they're telling me they're going to kill me. And so I ask him, why? He tells me, Mom, because I saw the Dutch girls in the car. According to Margarita, Osman was in Boquete's town square the day before Chris and the sand went missing. He saw a red pickup truck parked there. A pickup truck that Edwin Sabroson was driving. When he got to the park, he saw the car of the son of the Sabroson restaurant-owning family. It was a red pickup truck. And in the back of the pickup truck, he saw Chris in the sand. Back in the rear seats of the cab. Each of them had a beer in their hands and they were smoking cigarettes. He didn't talk to them. He just saw them. But soon after this sighting, Chris and the sand vanished. And soon after that, while Osman was at work late one night, his friend Milagros, the one who got him his job, told him something disturbing. She told him she knew Chris and Lissan were dead and that the pandilla was responsible. Milagros Peña told Osman everything, what they did to the Dutch girls. Then the threats began. He said, because they killed the Dutch girl's mother. Because I saw them with the Dutch girls, they're going to kill me. And after that, two days later, they killed my son. 
Osman Valenzuela died on April 4th, 2014. That's two days after Chris and Lasanne were reported missing. He was found dead, drowned, but with a severe head injury in the Chiriquita River near Boquete. Margarita was convinced he'd been murdered and that the pandilla had made good on their threat to kill him. But Margarita wouldn't learn the whole truth about what happened to her son until almost a year later. That's when Murgas, a member of the pandilla, approached her outside a pool hall. I was coming from work. He was standing at a pool hall. He said to me, I want to talk to you. Margarita says Murgas was haunted by guilt. He told me, I can't sleep. I see your son in my dreams. He told me, I can't take it anymore. I need to talk about this. I need you to know the truth. So I told him, then tell me. Margarita had long suspected Osman was murdered by the pandilla, just as he'd feared. But now she had confirmation. Murgas confessed to Margarita. Yes, he was there. The pandilla killed her son. He had been present, complicit, a witness and an accomplice. And he tells me, and I ask him why. He says they killed him because he knew about the Dutch girls. Murgas told Margarita how it happened. He said Osman's friend, Milagros, the same one who told him Kristen Lesan had been murdered, invited Osman out to the river. She then alerted the pandilla that he would be there. Ellos llegan allá. Al río. Al río. Mm-hmm. A group follows them to the river. Y él se asienta en una piedra. Él estaba sentado mirando hacia afuera. Pero ya para irse. Ya para irse. Él estaba con su ropa. Margarita says that's when the whole pandilla arrived. And then Edwin, the octopus, gave the order. El muchacho del sabrosón le dice al otro, mátalo. He said kill him. Margarita's not sure who attacked her son. It could have been any of them, or all of them. It could have even been Murgas himself. Y agarra la piedra. He took up a rock. Y le pega a mi hijo aquí. And he hit him in the back of the head with it. Mi hijo cae. My son fell. De ahí, escondieron a Osman. Lo arrastraron. Osman no estaba muerto. He wasn't dead. Él estaba vivo. He was still alive. ¿Qué pasa? Que lo envolvieron de allá arriba del puente. Lo tiran. They threw him from a bridge. Now that she knew the truth, Margarita wanted more from Murgas. It wasn't enough for her to hear his confession. She wanted the young men who did this in jail. And she needed Murgas to come clean about what he knew and what he had done. I told him, I can't help you with your conscience. What I want is for you to come with me to the lawyer and give a declaration. She says Murgas was frightened he would end up dead, just like Osman. Murgas told me this. 
I know that if I talk, they will kill me. And I told him, they are not going to kill you, Morgas. We are going to go to the lawyer and you're going to tell them everything you have said. And he said to me, I agree. But before Murgas had a chance to tell his story to the authorities, he went out to celebrate his 22nd birthday. That day he goes to the cantina and starts drinking. Milagros was there, Aguirre's boy was there, and Gonzalez, and they took him. That's Milagros, the same friend who, it sounds like, may have betrayed Osman, and Edwin, and Tito. Margarita says, after Murgas got drunk with them, he began to make very public confessions right there at the cantina, talking loudly about how they'd all killed Osman and Chris in the sand. He started talking, saying, we killed Osman, and we killed the Dutch girls because he was so drunk. Margarita says members of the pandilla quietly disappeared with Murgas, got him out of the cantina, put him into a car, and drove away. Murgas would be found dead by the roadside the next morning, in what would appear to be a hit and run. Thanks for listening to Lost in Panama. We hope the story means as much to you as it does to us. We'd really appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Gracias. Thanks so much. Mi gente, we've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know that every day somebody tells you that you just have to listen to some podcasts, and you nod and say, sure, uh-huh, and then you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better-informed more critical thinker, so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Each episode is a conversation with a different, fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean that. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI, I mean, isn't that incredible, who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you. Which sounds useful and disturbing, I'll admit. I also recommend to our listeners to check out Jordan's conversations about adapting and innovating in this new normal with the co-founder of Netflix, Reid Hoffman. These examples are different, but are both spectacular episodes. Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom that you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations, or search The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
for most of us, learning another language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. You guys know that I speak English, y espanol, et je parle français aussi. It was so hard for me to learn French. Now, thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. I chose French because I love French cinema and music. Yes, I'm a hopeless romantic. And I wanted to be able to travel to Paris and feel connected with the culture. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans. But Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash Panama. That's babbel.com slash Panama for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Murgas died in a suspicious hit-and-run accident in late March of 2015, just shy of a year after Chris and Lesan disappeared. But before he was killed, Murgas confessed to Margarita that he knew what happened to her son Osman and to Chris and Lesan because he was there when they were murdered. Murgas told Margarita that he and the pandilla followed Chris and the sand in a red pickup truck before going after them in the jungle on foot. The pandilla knew where to find them. Chris and the sand had taken a taxi to the pianista trailhead. And as the taxi was driving down, Murgas, along with Edwin, Tito, and Cuervo, were in the red pickup truck, driving up. When the taxi driver is coming down, the guys in the red truck arrive. They stop the taxi driver and ask him, where do you leave the Dutch girls? Police interviewed the taxi driver who brought Chris and Lesan to the pianista. Actually, they interviewed him twice. He changed his story, fudging the date and time he dropped off the women. And he never mentioned anything about running into the pandilla on the way back to town. He didn't want to talk the first time they interviewed him. He says, I'll talk, but get me security so they can protect me. Because I know if I talk, they'll kill me. The taxi driver, his name is Leonardo Arturo Gonzalez. Or should I say, was. 
Leonardo drowned in shallow water in a river near Boquete on March 3rd, 2015, a few weeks before Murgas died in that suspicious hit-and-run. So, another convenient accident? Or maybe another witness who could place the pandilla members with Chris in the sand, and this time at the pianista. Margarita says Chris and the sand were surprised to run into the pandilla, but ultimately followed them back to town. Well, at first they were afraid because they didn't plan to meet those guys up there. But those guys tricked them and told them that they were coming back to show them the Piedra de Lino. She says the pandilla led them back to town on the pretense of checking out the Piedra de Lino, a scenic overlook near the pianista. But instead, they walked for hours, finally arriving at Cuervo's house in the neighborhood of Palo Alto. Cuervo is one of the four guys who was there that day, according to Margarita. And it was his house they went to, to party. In fact, Cuervo's house is the same house where Chris and the Sand may have partied before, after buying weed from the pandilla. Margarita says, once they got to the house, the men then gave Chris and the Sand a bunch of drugs and alcohol before things went sour. They were happy, and then suddenly, under the spell of euphoria, these men went crazy. And they started grabbing the girls, and the girls didn't want to do anything. Margarita says the trouble started when Tito, Feliciano's son, started touching Chris. Chris struggled, tried to shake him off. Then she hit him. She hits him in the face. But why did she hit him? Because she didn't want him to rape her. That's logical. And that's when the boy hits her. That's when Tito attacked Chris. According to Margarita, Tito completely lost it. When he hits her, he knocks her over and throws her to the ground. And when she fell... He began to hit her and hit her. That's what Morgus told me. When I asked Morgus, but what did he hit her with? He says, with his fist. Do you know what it's like when a man hits a woman in the face? It's horrible. And they grab the other young woman. This young woman sees what they're going to do, and she screams. But in that house, who's going to hear her? There is no one around. So that young woman died instantly from all the blows that man gave her. And her friend, her sister, sees that. She threw herself on top of the other one, and the same thing happened to her. That was when they hit the second one with a hammer. Well, that's how they caught the other one in the same way. She was all disfigured when they all raped her. It was like a massacre. There was a pool of blood. After the pandilla realized what they had done, she says, they had to cover it up somehow. She says Cuervo called one of his employees, an agave bugle man from Alto Romero, to help clean up the crime scene. 
cuerpo llama. Cuerpo calls an indigenous man, one who works for Cuervo. He was the one that cleaned Cuervo's house full of blood. The young men, she alleges, then dismembered the bodies before burying the remains in black trash bags on Cuervo's property. Some black bags, large bags, that's where they put the Dutch girls. They were dismembered because they didn't all fit in the back. In Cuervo's very same farm, the girls are buried. Margarita says Murgas told her the exact spot. They bury the bodies, and this is what Murgas tells me, in a place where there is a mango tree, but far away from the house. I tell him, but there are so many mango trees, where am I going to find the right one? He told me, you won't miss it. She adds that after a couple of weeks had passed, the young men decided to scatter some strategic remains in the jungle to make it look like a hiking accident. They cut her foot with his hot saw, and from there, that leg, they throw it on the waters of the river. That's what they throw in the river. Why did they do it? To throw people off the trail of where they could have been. She says that's not all the men staged. She believes the emergency calls and the night photos were all faked. That is, Chris and Lisanne didn't make them. She says the young men confiscated both phones and made those calls themselves. Anyone in the pandilla would have known how far from Cuervo's house they needed to walk in order to strategically lose reception. To make calls that wouldn't go through. To make it look like Chris and Lisanne were lost in the jungle. Marcus asks Henry, why are you calling? They are going to find out where these girls are. And he said, no, no, I know what I'm going to do. She also says the young men tampered with the camera, that it was Edwin who took the night photos. The photos that appear on the Dutch girl's camera were not taken by the Dutch girls. The one who took them was Aguirre. He says, it is to throw people off the trail. And missing photo 509? The one that was mysteriously deleted from the camera's SD card? Margarita tells us the reason that photo was deleted was because it showed Tito and Edwin, and thus could have implicated them. There is a single photo, which is the one they deleted, but Henry comes out on, and Sabroson's son, what's his name? Aguirre. So, with Chris and Lisanne buried in the backyard, a few of their bones strategically scattered, and their phone and camera usage faked, this was the perfect crime. The only thing left to do was to make sure nobody talked. And that could be why we're left with so few witnesses, with only Margarita willing to tell us what happened. We're stunned at the close of this interview. 
Margarita is the first person to give us a complete theory of the crime. Names, dates, location, who did it, why, when. She says Edwin, Tito, Cuervo, and Murgas intercepted Chris and Lasanne on the pianista, led them to Cuervo's house, and killed them. They faked the phone calls. They took the pictures. And they planted evidence in the jungle to make it look like a hiking accident. This is a new theory that finally accounts for all the evidence. It explains everything that doesn't line up about the phones and the camera. And Margarita is putting herself in immense danger coming forward with this story. But it's all for the love of her son. I love him so much. Even if he's not here with me, but I want justice. I wake up every day at 3 a.m. and I stand in front of a picture of my son. And I said to him, one day, God will grant you justice. And I cry for him. I know one day God will bring me justice. And one day, we'll know where the Dutch girls are. We know what we have to do next. We have to go to the house where Margarita says the murders took place, where she says the bodies were buried. We have to see where Cuervo lives, the house of the crow. So we get in the car and drive out to Palo Alto, a neighborhood on the outskirts of Boquete. Martín, the private investigator, offers to lead us there. He knows the neighborhood and can guide us. And better yet, he knows where to find Cuervo's house. Okay, vamos, Don Martín, vamos. Okay. Andy Cuervo. Sí. Porfa. Okay. Sí, vamos. Okay. We are proceeding to what we now believe could be the residence where the double homicide took place. The house belongs to the Saracen family. The son was nicknamed Cuervo, which means crow in Spanish. El vivía ya todavía. Martin has just informed us that the suspect apparently still lives on the premises. The team arrives at Cuervo's house and parks nearby. It's a relatively small one-story house, painted a sickly shade of orange-yellow. The door is open. There's a dog on the porch, and a TV is playing inside. So someone must be home. And then our guide sees something on the other side of the fence, in Cuervo's yard. That is a mango tree, and it is on the Saracen property. We've found what may be the burial site 
but how do we get to it? Jeremy sneaks behind the house, careful to stay out of sight. Jeremy gets closer and closer to the mango tree. And it's in a creek bed screened by other small trees and shrubs. It's a pretty secluded area, actually. Enough shelter on the bank of the creek to say, dig a shallow grave without being seen. So there is a mango tree here. There's, it's, a, it's a concealed area. You could easily work here at night and you would not be visible from the road. According to the confession, this would have been where they were buried and then disinterred from here and moved as the investigation closed in on the perpetrators. Okay, where's the mango tree? Here. Jeremy makes it back to the car in one piece. We've found the mango tree, and we hope we haven't been seen by Quetable or whoever's watching TV inside the house. Now that we've found the tree, Margarita's story carries more weight. The detail of the mango tree makes her testimony seem plausible. I mean, it's a strange detail to just make up. Another detail we notice. Within about 100 yards of the property, headed into the jungle, there's no cell reception. If the murderers made the emergency calls on Chris and the Sands' phones, like Margarita said, they wouldn't have had to go very far before they could log calls that never went through. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. (gasps) No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The whole time we're at Cuervos, we wonder, how did Chris and the San get here? We know from their photos that they were at the Mirador at one in the afternoon. How is it possible that no one saw them come back down the Pianista with a group of recognizable guys from the neighborhood? Something's still not making sense. Jeremy wonders if it's possible there's some sort of shortcut through the jungle that could have brought Chris on the sand back to Palo Alto, unseen. There may be a trail that connects this house or the, or the grounds behind the house to the Pianista Trail. To answer this question, we return to Jose Donderis, the former head of Cineproc, who knows this jungle and these trails better than anyone. We ask him, by chance, is there some secret way Chris and Lissan could have teleported from the Mirador to Palo Alto without being seen? Jose surprises us. 
he not only confirms the existence of such a trail, which is called Pata de Macho, he offers to show it to us. All right, where are we, Jeremy? We're here at the Pata de Macho Trail, which translates to Hoof of the Tapir. And this runs up to the Mirador. So it would have been a, a way for our suspects to transport Chris and Lisanne or escort them uh, to the party house, which is just a couple of kilometers that way. Jose tells us this trail isn't used a lot, and for good reason. It takes almost twice as long to get to the Mirador as just taking the Pianista. The Pianista runs straight from Boquete up to the Mirador, climbing all the way. But this trail runs along the crest of the central cordillera of the Talamanca Highlands. Call it the scenic route. It's flatter, longer, less strenuous. And most of the time, pretty empty. It is a road that currently very few people use. Probably just park rangers and possibly hunters who know their way around the mountain peak. Jose says it's a three to five hour walk to the Mirador. He leads the way. We have our walkies, we have knives, we have machetes. Um, so let's go. Once we get going, though, I realize the trail is not really a trail at all. More like an overgrown path. I'm surprised at how wild it is. It's pretty obvious no one is maintaining this trail. It's not a trail. It's a path. If you pass by today and tomorrow you want to pass by it again, and it has rained, you probably won't be able to get through unless you cut the undergrowth with the machete. The Pata de Macho is a longer, meandering route that matches up with what Margarita told us that Chris and the San walked back to Palo Alto with the pandilla members, unseen. Tito, being the son of a tour guide, would have known about this trail. He would have been able to navigate it, perhaps while one of the other pandilla members drove the red truck back to Cuervo's house. Jose also tells us, hypothetically, of course, the pata de macho would be a stealthy way to transfer evidence. Even human remains. And what he was saying is that this would be an easy trail to use to transfer some of the remains from the original burial site up into the Cordillera. Mm. It's easy as drinking water from this room. Muy fácil. To get rid of the scattered evidence or to plant it. I know we're investigating this murder hypothesis. But José is the former head of Cineproc. He's been highly critical of the search efforts to locate Chris in the sand. So I have to ask. Was this place searched? In this area, I remember walking the path that connects to the suspicious house. This route, I'm almost certain that either no one or very few people looked for them on patrol. Why? Because we were prohibited. Initially, your attempt to, to come into this area and search was thwarted. We weren't able to search because we had problems with the authorities. The director of the operation was not comfortable with my participation on the site, 
due to political problems. This is pretty shocking. No wonder Jose is pissed. The Pata de Macho is a totally separate trail that also connects to the Mirador, a trail that Chris and Lasanne could very well have been on after they disappeared. Foul play or no, maybe Chris and Lasanne took a wrong turn down this alternate path. Or maybe they were taken down this trail, this super-secret stealthy trail, all the way to Palo Alto, to the House of the Crow, La Casa de Cuervo, to their deaths. And Jose's telling us this trail wasn't searched. And back in 2014, he was prevented from searching it. We're a couple of hours from the Mirador when Jose says it's starting to look like rain. He warns us that rising water levels could make our journey back extremely dangerous. So the rains are turning us back, or the potential rains, the looming rains, we can see it's already clouding over. But we've confirmed that this is a real theory. They could have come down this other trail that we didn't know about before. And it connects directly to the possible scene of the crime. It's raining. It's it's raining. Let's go, bud. Let's go. Back in the car, we process everything that's happened today. Jeremy still can't believe we were able to interview Osman's mother, Margarita, and substantiate her story with the house, the mango tree, and the secret trail. Basically, all the pieces of the puzzle fell into place, right? Like, every question I've ever had about this case was answered. Every question I've had for eight years was answered by this woman today. Could we be on the verge of solving this case? Not only proving that Chris and the Sand were murdered, but also identifying the killers. It certainly felt like that while Margarita was speaking with us. She sounded genuine and believable. If it was a put-on, then she is an Academy Award-worthy actress. But it's not just whether she's believable or not. It's that she's really just telling us what she was told by others, Murgas and her own son. As our cameraman Luis points out, while we're coming down from the day's excitement, Margarita isn't technically a witness. She seems very moved by what she's telling us. Do you find her story credible? Yeah, but it's hearsay. It's hearsay. Well, it's a, I mean, it's a confession from one of the killers. She didn't, she's not the witness. A witness told her what? He witnessed. Yes, so, yes. Eight years ago. It's not like any... It's probably the closest we're going to come because none of these people who actually did the crime are going to come and talk to us, right? But we could go talk to them. They're all still in town. And thanks to Margarita's testimony, we know a lot more about these guys and what role they may have played in the alleged murder. What's emerging is that uh, Edwin Aguirre is actually the ringleader. And Henry is the muscle, you know, is, is the more violent one. But not the terribly smart one. 
It's Aguirre who plans everything. Maybe we should try to get close to this guy, Edwin. The one Margarita calls El Pulpo, the octopus. If she's right about the group dynamics of the pandilla, Edwin could be at the center of it all. His family owns a chain of restaurants in Boquete. He can't be that hard to find. So we drive around, and one by one, we check out every Sabrosong restaurant in town. And on our third try, we get lucky. We walk into the place, and Edwin is right there, with a bit of scruff and a little belly. It's surreal to see him in person when we've just heard he could be involved in multiple murders. To get him talking, I pose as an influencer doing social media vlogging about the restaurants in Boquete. I ask for the best plate on the menu. Edwin gives us the grand tour. While he's showing us around, I turn on all of my charm and ask if he can help me find a proper fiesta for later that evening. I pulled him to the side and, you know, in Spanish, I said, do you think that we could maybe, where could we go grab a smoke? And immediately he said, how much do you want? I don't do it, but I have friends who do. Let's meet at seven to discuss more because I got to go run some errands. Edwin says he can find me some weed. He tells us to meet him at a bar downtown. Back in the car, our team debates whether to follow through for this meetup with Edwin. Our driver is crying hysterically. She says Edwin is a big-time local drug trafficker, and if he sees through our ruse, then all our lives could be in danger. Our cameraman, Luis, says we need to back out now. He's a distributor. He's not a low-level. Tito's like the local. He's one of his peons here that does just the dealing. But he is the, he's a distributor at a higher level. So she's saying that his restaurants are used for money laundering for the local drug racket. And not for the local drug racket. But it's Costa Rica. It's, he's not a low-level dealer. He is a distributor. If it's true that he's this powerful, if he is some regional mm. drug kingpin, yeah. that could explain why the town is so terrified to speak out about what has happened. The fear in this car is not fear of him, it's fear of your guys' recklessness. Jeremy and I decide we'll meet Edwin alone and leave the local members of our team out of it. But when we get to the bar that night, Edwin isn't there. He had agreed to meet us at 7 p.m. He, you know, half an hour went by. And I asked the bartender, do you know if he was, is going to show? Do you have any way of contacting him? And he actually said, oh, my God, he left a little something for you. There's a small bag of weed waiting for us. The bartender says it's a gift from Edwin, free of charge. So the drugs have arrived. But Edwin himself is nowhere to be seen. We leave the weed with the bartender. We make up an excuse about not wanting to take advantage of Edwin's generosity. But the truth is, weed is illegal in Panama. And having drugs on us puts the whole team at risk. We're not law enforcement or private investigators. Plus, where's Edwin? Why didn't he show? Is he on to us? But as the days go by, I keep getting text messages from Edwin. If he knew we were investigating him, it doesn't seem likely that he'd want to keep chatting. I keep texting him back, but 
I don't push. I don't ask about Osman or Chris in the sand. We'd be putting ourselves in danger asking more questions, making him suspicious. Not to mention, it could blow our cover completely. And for what? Yeah, because I think you guys got in your head that we're creating a podcast. It has to be dramatic. So now your goal right now is to create drama for a show, not really solve a case. We are trying to solve this case. We know where to find Edwin. We have his updated photo and phone number to give to authorities if they decide to reopen the case. We know that he knows how to get drugs. And buying weed is exactly the theory of how Chris and Lasan got in contact with the pandilla in the first place. But no matter how close we get to Edwin, no way he will confess to us. We need some other way to put him and the pandilla in Cuervo's house during the alleged murder. What we need is a first-hand witness, not more free drugs. So who can we talk to? Who can corroborate Margarita's story? Surely there are other people in Boquete who have some knowledge of what happened that night. Someone who can attest that Chris and Lasan were intercepted by the pandilla and brought back to Cuervo's house, where they were killed. The alleged perpetrators, Tito, Edwin, Cuervo, they're not going to talk to us. At least not about this case. And Osman and Murgas are dead. But what about the Ngabe Bugle man who may have helped clean the crime scene and bury the remains? If he was there for the aftermath of a brutal murder, he could be our first-hand witness. He's the only person who can help us. And one of our sources knows where he is. That's next time. To piece them up and put them in bags. Only crazy people do that. They've killed the victim, they're cooling down a little bit, and they're now able to start thinking about, oh no. Luminol, to determine if there's human blood, no matter how much they clean. The police officer's testimony is identical to Osman's mother. Like, uh-huh. the entire hair on my neck, like, stood up because right. so many things coincided. The indigenous man who works for the Cuervo Saracen family He's the only person that can open this tamal. Lost in Panama is hosted by me, Mariana Atencio, with original reporting by Jeremy Cripe and Mariana Atencio. Chief Investigative Correspondent, Jeremy Cripe. Written by Jeremy Cripe and Trent K. Maverick. Produced by Trent K. Maverick. Executive Producers, Colin Thompson, Julian Favre, and Jeremy Cripe. Supervising producer, DJ Lubel. Co-producer, Mona Hassan. Associate producer, Lenora Quiñones. Translator, Lenora Quiñones. Editing by Steven Perez, Anton Doty, and Alex Gonzalez. Mixing and mastering by Matt Sul. Voice actors, Naneli Cardona and Steven Perez. Travel and logistics coordinator, Brooke MacArthur. On-site audio recording by Richard Carlos. On-site photography by Luis Iga Garza. Original music written by Colin Thompson. Orchestration, arrangement, and additional compositions by Andrew Gerliger and Jesse Haugen. Music recorded at the Resort Studios. Music engineered by Caleb Morris. 
assistant engineer, Jordan DiDonato. Instrumentalists, Matt Ordaz, Phil Glenn, Laura Bedal, Jennifer Wu, Jean-Paul Barjon, Sam Solorzano, Jesse Haugen, and Trevor Gomez. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions and APM. Cover art by Paula Henches. Special assistance by Elizabeth Muñoz, Martin Eduardo Ferrara O'Donnell, Pamela Soledad Adaro, Mayra Alejandra Madrid Rodríguez, Antonio Quiroz, Balbino Samudio, Max de Arles Rovira, and Ahmed Villarreal. Very special thanks to Susan Rezepka. Thanks for listening to Lost in Panama. We'd really appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. Gracias. Thank you so much. Subscribe to Cast Plus to listen ad-free with bonus episodes at castmedia.com slash castplus. Listen to this podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.